Father God, uh, we pray for the presence of your spirit, your spirit of adoption, your spirit of empowerment in the house this morning, that you would change us all a little bit or a lot uh, before we go. We've come in, Lord, with different needs, uh, with different confusions, with different concerns, with different ambitions, all from different places, Lord, but we uh, present it to you this morning and ask now uh, as uh, we move to the second part of the service that, that you administer to us, your children. Uh, we are in need of your kingdom. So we pray as Jesus taught us, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. We're better off that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That was a, a great, great set of, of musical worship. Uh, but now let's kind of warm ourselves up. Uh, for, uh, for the sermon. Uh, let's do a warm-up question. Everybody roll your shoulders. Everybody stretch left. Everybody stretch right. Everybody take a moment to invade the personal space of the person next to you. All right, so here's the question. You are your biggest ongoing project. You're your biggest ongoing project in life. Uh, so what's one thing you're improving about yourself these days? What's one thing you're working on these days about yourself, about project self? Uh, what's one thing uh, that you're working on? Uh, share it with the person next to you. What's one thing you're working on? It could be a great thing like, oh, I'm learning to let go of the past. I'm learning to receive love. That's pretty big. Or it could be like, yeah, I want to drop five pounds, you know, a little, a little more mini. Or maybe that seems big to you. I don't know. Um, and it may be that you have no idea what you're working on or should be working on, in, in which case just admit it and move on. All right, go. You've got 30 seconds. Share. All right, all right. That's enough sharing. Uh, let me hear. What are you working on? Who heard some interesting things? What are you working on? Anybody got something cool? Who's working on listening to the pastor? Yeah, yeah. What, 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 what are you working on? Who, who, who heard something interesting? You can totally out the person next to you if you want. You're working on identity. Well, uh, nothing big. Identity, dang, okay, sure. Personal identity, how you think of yourself, how you conceive of yourself as a person. That's kind of a, that's kind of a thing. What else? Surrounding yourself with positivity. Oh, while you're sitting back there next to your husband? Yeah. Surrounding yourself with positivity. Uh, because, I like that, because there's an assumption there. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, you, uh, you make choices about your environment. And your environment really, really uh, empowers you or disempowers you oftentimes. So that's great. One more. Truth. Grace, truth, grace, make up your mind, people. No, they go together, don't they? And uh, that's a great uh, setup for the sermon. I asked that question today because it's just so important for us to conceive of ourselves as something in process. There's something about that that defines us as human beings that we are not automatons, we are not robots, we are not simply pre-programmed 
We're not billiard balls just crashing together in the world. No, we make important choices. And uh, the choices that we make determine the course of, of lives, the course of the world around us oftentimes, but also the course of more fundamental things like identity, how we conceive of ourselves, or truth, how we can even understand truth. You know, you might not be able to understand 100% of truth today. You have to work on it to open your mind and to get clear and to remove the confusions and the lenses. Anyway, we're a work in progress. And as soon as you conceive of yourselves differently as a robot, as predetermined, fated, and then I think you lose something of humanity. What we're talking about more generally in this sermon series, as most of you know, is, is culture. Um, we have a, a saying around here that culture is the best coach. Uh, culture is the best coach. So we try, we try to build an environment around blue water, uh, sort of a, you know, a set of expectations, of, of, of mutual expectations and, and norms and, and, you know, our positivity that coaches us forward in good directions. Culture is something that you're not always in touch with, but which affects you always. Um, and, and the problem right now in society in general is that our culture is in a tremendous upheaval. Cultures always evolve, but sometimes something happens to them to make them devolve, to make them evolve in, in, in interesting directions. All societies have culture, and the job of culture is to keep the people healthy and strong. That's the job of culture. Uh, in, in the primitive world, it's hard to survive. I mean, for most of, of human history, it's been very, very hard to survive. So groups of people have evolved systems of relating together and getting through the world. Uh, systems uh, having to do with, uh, well, how to handle birth and death, how to handle things like marriage and families and child rearing, how to handle economics and economic traditions and, and how to handle, how to define social roles, what it means to be a good man or a good woman. All of these things are part of society's cultures. And, and the reason societies have cultures is because it, societies try to pass down systems that help their children survive, right? It's, it's sort of a, a theory of evolution, but of cultures. Anthropology uh, has, uh, is a study that, that deals with this oftentimes. As the years go by, cultures that make societies healthy survive themselves. Cultures that make societies healthy tend to exist for long periods of time. Cultures that make their societies healthy tend to spread, tend to dominate, and some cultures become very, very dominant. We've often uh, used the example of Roman culture uh, in this sermon series. It was a culture like none other on, that the earth had seen, and it was, it was so strengthening, so empowering for its society that its society became a very, very dominant. Okay. Occasionally what happens is that culture succeeds so much, societies succeed so much that the world, instead of becoming a threatening place, becomes a very easy place. And, and during those periods, instead of culture having to discipline itself to get by in the jungle, 
culture can relax. Culture can get lazy. Um, it's like, uh, you know, when we're living out on the frontier as human beings trying to hack a life out of the forest, we're going to be pretty healthy people. Our bodies are going to be lean and hard, right? Because we're working hard every day. Uh, but these days in America, 60% of women and 70% of men are significantly overweight or obese. Why? Well, because the world is luxurious now. We don't have to be physically healthy anymore uh, to have a, a pretty decent life, right? So in super rich, super successful, late stage societies, cultures can get deconstructed. Cultures can start to eat themselves. When society gets luxurious, it can look at where it's come from and it can sort of deconstruct its own pillars. It can dishonor mother and father, right? It can totally throw away the systems that brought it prosperity and health and strength and coherence in the first place. And that's really where we are right now. This phenomenon of deconstruction, deconstructionist culture from time to time in history, and, and when cultures hit it, they tend to fall apart like the Romans did. Um, you know, societies decide, well, who needs discipline? Oh, those morals are old-fashioned. We can just throw those out. I mean, they were, they were never needed in the first place. And it's sort of a culture arrogance that spells, that spells uh, uh, troubles, trouble. Uh, it happened to the Romans, like I say. Uh, they got uh, very, very lazy. Um, and they ended up being conquered by... Um, by the barbarians, by the Goths, by the Vis Visigoths, just wiped out the Roman Empire to such a degree that nobody even speaks Latin anymore. Uh, and Europe went into what was called the Dark Ages, and it stayed in the Dark Ages. It was wiped out socially for centuries until basically it was re-civilized by a bunch of Irish Christian monks. Um, but that's another story. Um, they, they, uh, they came back into Europe from Ireland. They sort of reinvigorated the church. They reinvigorated Christianity, which it with its moral culture and its value on truth uh, and its value on faith and positivity, just to name a couple that have already been mentioned. Uh, and, and, and Europe was reborn. The Renaissance uh, happened uh, just in time to hold off uh, the Muslim conquerors from the south and the east, uh, which you should be very happy about uh, because the rebooted Christianized Europe then gave us the Enlightenment, scientific progress, representative and free government, uh, uh, revolutions in economic productions all, that all but alleviated uh, poverty um, in, in the Western world. And all of these systems, most of the world now imitate uh, because they have been so successful. But back to the point, cultures exist for a reason. Traditional cultures exist for a reason. Moral culture exists for a reason, and that reason is to keep its people safe, to keep its people healthy and strong. That's how, that's how culture works. And when culture stops working to do that, then society gets in a, a bad way. Here's the problem that we as humans face. The thing that makes us human, our ability to make free choices, gives us extraordinary capacities to do good, to be inventive, and to make progress. But it also gives us extraordinary capacities to do evil. 
extraordinary capacities to do evil. And that really separates us from the rest of animals. We, we are unique in, in that way. We have the capacity to take things into new places. There are other animals that kill. But only we can be cruel and torturous in the way that humans have all but perfected over the years. If there's one thing the 20th century should have taught us is that our capacity to go nuts in cruelty and murder is almost unthinkably large. The industrial murder machines, the torture machines that we saw in World War I and World War II and you know, socialist, Marxist Europe, you know, the extermination camps and stuff, only humans can do that kind of evil. Only humans can do that. Just like only humans can come up with the enlightenment and progress and all but eliminate poverty in the West. We can do either. We can go either ways. We can get crazy when culture falls apart. We can get crazy when moral culture turns, turns evil, uh, stops disciplining us uh, in, in a good way. We pursue sometimes suffering for suffering's sake. We know what it means to hurt, and therefore we can make choices to hurt other people. We've developed a capacity to enjoy hurting other people. We've, we've developed a capacity to enjoy uh, perversions of all sorts. And sometimes we misidentify and think that those are the things that make us human and free. I could go on, but it's hardly worth arguing the point because I think we all know it to be true. We can become all sorts of things mentally to the, to the point of delusions. Uh, we can become all sorts of things relationally to the point of unspeakable abuse. We can become addicts. We can become slaves. We can become all sorts of things sexually to the point of, well, there really are no limits to what we can become. Uh, we have a great menu of, of sexual things that we can choose to pursue. And we can do at all. We can do anything because we're human. And it's in that place where we need strong culture to help us, I think, because it's really easy to lose our bearings, and it's really easy for society to lose its bearings sexually. And in fact, that's one of the things that history shows. When cultures hit that deconstructionist stage, sexual culture just goes ballistic. It just explodes. Everything becomes permissible. All sorts of crazy relationships and practices sprout up. And I think we're starting to see that in, in our culture since, since the 60s. It's not just that traditional sexual culture has been deconstructed. It's that all sorts of replacement uh, sexual activities and sexual cultures have been promoted as good and free. You ought to do these things. You ought to. And if you say otherwise, well, I don't know, you're repressed, you're a bigot, you're a hater, whatever. I think our sexual culture is pretty screwed up. Now, my goal as a minister is to make free individuals who can choose well. I, I'm fond of saying that um, Satan tries to take control of your life. The Holy Spirit tries to give you control of your life. God does not want robots. God wants free individuals. That's one thing that Christianity did uh, for the West when it took reroot following the Dark Ages. It created a culture of individual freedom that the world had never seen before. 
It's pure Jesus, baby. That's pure Holy Spirit. God wants to make free humans who are able to make good choices, not controlled humans uh, who have to make uh, bad ones. Uh, it's hard to make healthy sexual choices, particularly in our culture. But it's always been hard, which is why there has always been strong sexual disciplinary cultures. And woe to us if we just remove the culture. We're capable of crazy things. It's hard to choose healthy things uh, sexually. So you should probably try to honor good sexual culture. Make good choices if you can. The first thing we humans tried to remember about ourselves, the first story we told ourselves, like the story of creation in the Garden of Eden, was that humanity is always presented with a choice. You can choose life, the tree of life, health, strength, or you can choose, well, the knowledge of good and evil. We've always been defined by our capacities to make choices. Make good choices. God made you free. He gave you the right to choose. Don't let anyone take that away. But choose well. You're your biggest project. Choose well. Wherever you find yourself, you might not have chosen the place where you're at, but you can always choose to go someplace different. Consciously and with discipline and hard pursuit. Uh, the Bible stresses uh, this uh, in terms of uh, sex and sexuality all the time. It says, look, you can be uh, sexually powerful, sacred, holy. Sex can work for you and it can work for your culture. Or you can become a Baal worshiper, uh, to use uh, the Old Testament uh, label. Uh, you can give yourself over to uncontrolled, wild debauchery that deconstructs you as a person and typically ends with throwing away babies, sacrificing your babies in, in rituals. Uh, you know, bad sex leads to destructive culture. All right, so today what I want to talk about is uh, what has become the, somehow the, the big moral question of our age uh, which is the question of, of homosexuality, and now it's sort of linked with all sorts of different sexualities, sexual identity in general, uh, transgenderism and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I want to talk about that because I'm, it's been a tough sermon series, and, and I really want to talk about something not controversial for a change. Uh, just kind of, you know, one where I can relax, and you guys can all take it easy. It's an important one because it is the moral question of, of, our, of our age and, and uh, you know, sex has become one of the keystones of deconstructionist culture. Now, I am old enough to remember where sexuality of all sorts, homosexuality, the, the initial gay rights movement was about choice. Are you guys, do you remember this? Are you, are you old enough to remember this? It, it, you, 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 would not, you would not write down your sexual orientation. You would write down your sexual, what was the word? preference, your sexual preference, and, and, and the gay rights movement was all about, look, we're grown people, we can make our own choices, uh, don't try to make our choices for us, which, like, yeah, okay, sure, we can talk about what's a good choice and, and, you know, what's a bad choice, but you're right, 
you know, people should be able to make their own choice. But somehow, uh, the, the sort of sexuality movement is no longer about choice. What is it about now? Well, it's about predeterminism. It's about you're born that way. I am born that way. I am programmed genetically to be this way or something quite close to that. And therefore, it is a human right. It is a civil right that you must honor. And the debate has, has, has evolved tremendously just just in, in, in my lifetime, just since the 70s and the 80s when it kind of kicked off. Uh, but, but however you define it, that question of sexual identity has become the biggest litmus test for whether you're in or out of dominant cultural groups. You know, how you think about sexuality pretty much determines where you live in culture these days. It determines uh, what political parties you belong to. Uh, and, and therefore, it determines uh, your view on a lot of other related and, and only peripherally related uh, issues. Now, Christians typically think that uh, non-monogamous, non-heterosexual relationships are unhealthy, bad, which is no longer the dominant culture uh, by any means. If you think that, let's use the real current word, non-conforming sexuality uh, is unhealthy, uh, then you're likely to be branded all sorts of nasty things. A homophobe, you know, it's a phobia, which is kind of ridiculous, but that's a, a word that's used a lot. Or a hater, or a bigot, or an oppressor, or just an awful person that won't open your eyes to science ostensibly because there's something out there in popular culture that thinks that science says uh, that uh, things like homosexuality are definitely inborn. Uh, one of the big moral issues have been, has been gay marriage. But gay marriage aside, I, I, I think the culture has progressed well beyond that now until the, the latest move over the last year or two uh, has been to kind of really regulate how people get to talk and think about issues of, of sexuality. Uh, one of the, the biggest explosions of the last two years had, had to do with human rights laws in Canada, particularly laws written by the Ottawa Human Rights Commission. Uh, that made it a hate crime for someone to not use ungendered pronouns, right? So there's he and there's she, uh, but there's a sexual sexuality movement that says, well, you know, those, those really are too restrictive. We need words like z or zer, uh, which can, which can um, you can refer to a person and not automatically assume that they're male or female. You know, which is... What, which is, which is fine. I mean, we did something in the 60s and 70s. Uh, we, had, we had two words uh, to refer to women formerly, Mrs. and Miss. The problem is that Miss makes you sound young. And so uh, the women's rights movement came up with a new one, Ms. Ms. And there was a famous magazine called Ms. Is this, is this still published? I think, I think it may be. Which was kind of cool uh, because, you know, it sort of implied that you can be an, an older, mature woman unmarried, and that's fine. I don't have to call you miss like you were some, you know, young lady. You know, it's honorific. And, you know, you, you could make a vaguely similar argument about non-gender pronouns, but we never tried to make it a hate crime uh, to not use the word ms. Uh, but now they're, they're doing that in Canada and in some places in the United States now, uh, particularly New York where you can be fined up to $250,000 or thrown in jail if you refuse to use non-gendered pronouns when you're asked to do so. Uh, if you're 
if you use a pronoun that offends somebody at your workplace in Manhattan, you can be fined a quarter of a million dollars and thrown into jail. You are guilty of a civil rights violation. That's, that's extraordinary to me, right? Because it's, it, it's, it's really speech control at that point. It's extraordinary. Um, which is just to, just to say, I mean, culture is being very aggressive about this. You know, different ways that, that, it's, that it's pressing in on quote-unquote traditional um, sexual um, morality. Um, one of the last things that Obama did before leaving office was to, uh, to uh, issue a directive, an executive order it's sometimes called, to all agencies receiving federal funding that if they did not provide their clientele with gender-neutral bathrooms, they were at risk of losing all of their federal funding. And so that sort of started a unisex bathroom movement. And the reason for that is because transgendered people, people born with one gender, but who, who present themselves as another gender, should be able to walk into the bathroom of their choice. Or the locker room. This also applied to locker rooms in schools and stuff like that. So, so a biological male who had decided that uh, he wanted to live as a female, could use the female locker room in high schools or middle schools, according to this directive. That should have been thought through, I think. And indeed, there was a huge social explosion about it, such that uh, the, the order was, was a, a sort of softly uh, rescinded, and, and it was, I think, probably squelched by the press because it was definite overreach, and the press tends to be sort of liberal about these things. Um, but nonetheless, um, you will see a lot of gender-neutral bathrooms and in many places, gender-neutral bathrooms and locker rooms. Um, if, if you keep boys out of girls' locker rooms at high school now, I mean, technically, um, you, you could lose your, your, your federal funding. And uh, that's supposed to make the world safer. But I don't know. I mean, you're messing with male-female protocols that have existed for thousands of years in various societies. We could you know, talk more about that because I think it can be a nuanced subject. But deconstructionist culture is being very aggressive in this regard. And, and, I, and I think if, if you're morally traditional where sexuality is concerned, you can really feel that pressure in various ways. And I know that many, many of you have felt it. You know, it's like... Um, on one hand, you're trying to live a sexually disciplined life. You're trying to be sexually healthy. On the other hand, you're called you know, a bigot or a hater or you know, an, an oppressor. And that's, it's, that's a hard world to navigate. It's a hard world to live in. One wishes that we could just sort of talk about these things freely with truth and grace. Thank you very much. Graciously kind of let culture evolve if it needs to, rather than dictate it uh, from above. Um, the situation is, is hard. It's hard to have that conversation freely. Indeed, it's becoming illegal to have it freely. In California, if, if, if your child um, is confused about whether to be you know, attracted to men or women, um, and you take that child to therapy, that's now against the law, you could lose your child. The state could take your child away. 
because it's been defined as, as abuse. Obviously, your child is gay or transgender, and you're not allowed to speak into that as a parent. That's, that's probably a bit of an overreach because it's hard to figure things out, you know, sexually. Culture has always helped us with that. I don't really want the state helping me with that. Anyway, I think, just to sort of show my hands here, that really we have a lot of, I think that sexuality is more fluid uh, than, than we give it credit for, and, and that's why these issues need to be subjected to morals and discipline and culture and talk. I've personally uh, walked with, in, in relationship, uh, with over 80, 80 individuals who have effectively changed their sexual orientation, who were um, homeless or bisexual, and for reasons, various reasons, decided that that was not healthy for them. And so they just went through a process to sort of change the way uh, they approached things, changed their, their attitude. And, you know, many of those un individuals are living celibate lives now, and many of them uh, are now living in quote-unquote conventional marriages, whatever the heck that is. Um, and, you know, that's just my experience, the 80 to 85 of them, each of them enormously courageous individuals, because if you make a choice to adjust your identity in such a fundamental way, you have to be courageous. Some of my best friends and most admired people are in that group. Uh, personally, I've known about 10 individuals who are living transgender lives or transvestite lives, to use a word that's sort of uh, fallen out of, of, of usage. Uh, roughly 10 um, who, uh, who now aren't. Um, so I know that change is possible one way or the other. We're humans. We're not robots. God made you free. Now, those choices are often hard. We don't always choose where we're at. Lots of things influence us. But we can choose where we go. I know that to be true as a matter of, of personal uh, testimony. All right, so I want to talk about that today, uh, about uh, health and unhealth and sexuality and, and choices that you can make, but I want to do it by making a brief observation on divorce. Uh, because in Jesus' day, the big moral issue was not homosexuality and transgenderism and stuff like that. In Jesus' day, the big moral issue, the big public moral issue was divorce. That's uh, the issue that got John the Baptist beheaded, if you know that story. Uh, because there was a certain king who married his brother's wife, and I won't go into it. But everybody was talking about divorce and whether or not it was moral and whether or not it was allowable. And even the believers, even the Jews were talking about it and, and for good reason. In Malachi chapter 2, it says rather, rather plainly, God hates divorce. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. If you divorce your wife, you are doing violence to her, says the Lord Almighty. Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. That's the Lord's perspective on divorce. I hate it. Don't do it. To me, it's like violence. Worse, it's like doing violence to one you're sworn to take care of. Shame. Divorce. Matthew 5 says, it has, this is Jesus talking, 
in the Sermon on the Mount. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, like she runs out and cheats on you, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce equals adultery. How are we doing? I'm asking because a, a fairly high portion of you are divorced, and a fairly high portion of you are divorced and remarried. And according to Scripture, that's a hateful situation and tantamount to adultery. So how 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 are we doing? How how are we feeling? And in our society, and indeed in the church today, we've kind of made peace with divorce, haven't we? Uh, we treat it with truth and grace. Because the problem is that the Bible, who gives us these verses about how evil divorce is, also says, like in Deuteronomy chapter 2, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, well, he writes her a certificate of a divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, then she's not allowed to go back to the first guy. In other words, there was a fair bit of divorce in this culture and God himself defines the way to do it with certification. Like, look, if you've if you got to get rid of, of your spouse, and usually this is written from the men's perspective. Men had the most illegal clout back then. Um, all right, divorce her, but give her a certificate so that the next guy knows that she's free and clear and, and marriageable. So which is it? Does God hate divorce? Does he consider it violence? Does it equal adultery? Or is it okay if you do it right? Which is it? And this was confounding people in Jesus' day. They were arguing uh, about this. And it comes up in Mark chapter 10, and I'll just sort of read you this from Scripture. Uh, Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife or not? And they asked him this because no matter which answer he gave, somebody was going to hate him for that answer because it was the moral issue of his day. What did Moses command you? Jesus replied, Well, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a a certificate of divorce and send her away. And indeed, that's from Deuteronomy. It's true. Verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's where that phrase comes from. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. Uh, uh, Jesus were still confused. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. There it is. So what is he saying? What is he saying? That Moses was wrong? That the Old Testament was wrong? No, the key is in the phrase, because of the hardness of men's hearts, God allows divorce. Here's the deal. No, don't divorce your spouse. That's wicked. That's violence. And go into all the stats, the social stats that show how destructive divorce is. It just decimates children, for instance, and, and, and what it costs society. I mean, nobody thinks divorce is, is good, although we've tremendously liberalized divorce laws uh, in my lifetime. 
Um, it's, it's super destructive. But God knows that men, men's hearts are so hard that if he doesn't allow divorce, people who are trapped in a sick marriage will just get destroyed. Right? So it's a severe sort of mercy. You know, it's a choice where, okay, adultery is better than murder. You know, God is ranking damage here. God is saying, essentially, I'm willing to accept, to accept something that is far from ideal, that is actually kind of wicked. I'm willing to accept it in order to avoid something that's even more damaging and more wicked. And that's, that's why divorce is allowed by the Bible. But we should not miss the principle. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's always talking to the principle. He says, you know, the truth is divorce is violence. The grace is that if you're going to do it, at least do it in a godly, gentle manner. Truth and grace go together. Are you following me? And I think that's a wonderful way to approach a moral issue. Yeah, we could argue about what's ideal, but we also need to be tremendously generous and easy on each other because ain't none of us ideal. Right? That's Jesus. That's Christianity. Grace is maddening because it seems inconsistent. Ah, but it's beautiful. Largely because it's inconsistent. <laughs> because we're inconsistent. And grace matches us. All right, say amen if you're following me. All right, now we can talk about the big moral debate of our age, about homosexuality, because uh, I think homosexuality is unhealthy. And that's what Scripture says. There, there's a lot of argument these days about, oh, does Scripture really say uh, homosexuality is a bad idea? Yes, yes. Homosexuality is mentioned 11 different places in the Bible, and every place it's mentioned, it's mentioned in, in negative light negative uh, light. You can, you can go look these up yourself, but Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Judges 19, 1 Kings 14 and 15, 2 Kings 23, Romans 1, which is quite famous, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Jude 7, and I think that's more or less an exhaustive list of where things are mentioned. We can read from Leviticus 18 today uh, because we read from this scripture um, uh, a, a few weeks ago when we were talking about uh, sex in general, sex culture in general. Uh, and this is uh, probably the most famous Old Testament mention of homosexuality. Uh, and and, and what it, it, it's a passage about sexual behavior in general. And, and I really want people to notice the, the headline. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I'm the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. And that's, that's a loaded phrase. The person who obeys them will live by them. The person who obeys them will be healthy and strong is what that means. That's the way you said that in ancient Hebrew. I am the Lord. And then, then God you know, riffs on some sexual behaviors. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. That was important to say because like in Egypt, brothers and sisters of royal lines married each other to keep the line pure and it did not produce healthy people. Inbreeding doesn't. And 
That would be an obvious one. But it needs to be part of moral culture because people refuse to see what it did. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. It's just a Freudian nightmare. So use your mother. Don't have relations with her. For Pete's sake, people. Well, Peter hadn't lived yet, but... Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, like your half-sister. Whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere, there's some genetic problems if you do, but more than that, it kind of violates the safety of the home, doesn't it? Nasty things can happen if you let sex run amok in your family, in your, in your home. And tons of literature on that. It turns out the Lord was right. Um, do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are <clears throat> her close relatives. This is wickedness. All sorts of relational reasons there. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. I think that has to do with you know, graciousness and, and honor and gentleness and everything like that. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her because that tears communities apart, doesn't it? Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Babies are not throwaway. Don't throw away your kids. Don't, don't debase sexual culture to such a degree that infants are just consumer items to be used uh, as sacrifices at parties, which is what Moloch worship essentially was. They were orgies and drunken parties. It's, of course, but that's where deconstructed sexual culture goes. Uh, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defy yourself with it. You know, homosexuality, bestiality, both men and women. Do not defile in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive you out became defiled. In other words, in the nations, you're going to, in a short time, be exposed to some nations that forgot what strong sexual culture was. You'll be tempted to go that way, but it will destroy you. I'll go back to that phrase about homosexuality. You don't have sexual um, relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. That word detestable can also be translated as Confusion. In other words, that is a confusion. That's a terrible mix-up, right? You got to be straight, no pun intended. Um, because it leads to unhealth, right? The whole context of this is what makes you healthy and what leads to unhealth. The Lord is saying these things out of mercy and concern for our well-being, not just because bad sex pisses him off. It's not what it says. It says, no, no, do this and live. This will keep things going in a positive direction culturally uh, for you. Um, the Bible is pretty clear about it. So if you, you know, honor the Bible, that's something that you have to grapple with. Uh, contrary to popular belief, just take another five or seven minutes if that's okay. Science does not show that homosexuality is congenital, and this is, this is one that surprises me constantly, because in popular culture, I think the belief is that science has shown that all sorts of sexual orientation is inborn, right? It's genetically programmed. Have we heard this? Science doesn't show that at all. 
This is an example of bad science. Not that it would matter if science did, because I think, you know, science is pretty conclusively proven that men are wired for promiscuity and polygamy. But I don't think men should be promiscuous or polygamous. I think men should be monogamous, right? So we are often called to overcome our wiring. But that said, science doesn't show that homosexuality is, is inborn. And, and that makes sense, right? Because the theory of evolution, which I, which I believe in, by the way, um, teaches us that the traits that get passed from generation to generation are those traits which are reproductively advantageous, right? That's very basic to Darwinian theory. Homosexuality is not reproductively advantageous. Right? And in fact, studies have shown that if a trait brings so much as a 1% disadvantage in reproduction, uh, it will get selected out of the gene pool. And, you know, homosexuality doesn't really help you produce babies if you're um, unclear on why that is. I don't know. Talk to me later. <laughs> A Columbia professor, Robert Spitzer, was the guy who uh, got the, uh, the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from its list of disorders. He was like, no, no, we're not, we, we, we can't consider homosexuality a disorder. Let's, let's get that off. So, uh, and he's, he's a gay rights advocate. Um, but he says, what, what he did after, after accomplishing that is he interviewed 200 people who had changed orientation, who were formerly gay and, and were now not, living, living as, as not gay. He interviewed over 200 with them and determined that it was completely possible to change your orientation. The guy who got homosexuality removed from the list of psychiatric disorders is the same guy that said, but you get to make your own choices. Um, and he was vilified by the psychiatric community uh, for doing it. Um, University of Utah found that two-thirds of females who consider themselves lesbian at one point in their lives uh, changed, changed their label, as they put it. In other words, sexuality is fluid, particularly among females, is what science is discovering. The American Psychiatric Association fact sheet um, in, at least in the early 2000s, said, currently there is a renewed interest in searching for biological etiologies for homosexuality, biological sources of homosexuality. However, to date, there are no replicated scientific studies supporting any specific biological etiology for homosexuality. They're just, they're just not there. We just can't find any proof that homosexuality is inborn or has any um, genetic predeterminism. Uh, but but every time a study comes out and kind of suggests something in that direction, it gets international headlines because the culture really wants homosexuality to be congenital. That would be really convenient. So in 2003 uh, at UCLA, uh, the Molecular uh, Brain uh, Research uh, Journal published this study. Uh, it was a study done on genes and how they produced, uh, the term used in the study was sexual identity. And Reuters, the news service, reported the study this way. Sexual identity is wired into the genes, which discounts the concept that homosexuality and transgender sexuality are a choice, California researchers reported. 
The problem is that the study said nothing about homosexuality or transgenderism at all. The study only showed that genes determine the mix of hormones that are then released into the embryo to determine whether it's male or female. At a certain point, you know, the embryo is sort of amorphous, and then lots of chemical things happen, and the embryo becomes a male or a female. And the release of those genes, the release of those chemicals, are determined by this genetic sequence. Well, duh. We kind of knew that. We kind of knew that being male or female was, was genetic, did we not? But this UCLA study uh, found exactly the mechanism that, well, not exactly, but much more about the mechanism that makes it work. And somebody decided that that, because, because there was a genetic link to being male or female, there certainly must be a genetic link to being gay or transgender and it was reported, and all the news services picked this up, and it was frontline CNN, headline news, and all that stuff. But the study said nothing of the sort. But now people think that there is a genetic link. You can read the study. Uh, there was a, I'll just do one more. I've got lots of these, but um, this guy named uh, Dean Hamer uh, was working for the National Cancer Institute, and he became famous uh, for uh, the XQ28 chromosomal marker study. What he did is that he did a chromosomal analysis of, of brothers who were both gay. And then he tried to determine if there was anything unique about their chromosomal structure, assuming that if he found it, it would prove that that was the thing that made them gay. Are you following me? And so, in some of these brothers, he found an abnormality at this marker called XQ28. And he announced that it could have something to do with genetic predeterminism of, of being, being homosexual. But it was a deeply flawed study because he was looking at gay brothers, right, and trying to find similarities or abnormal similarities. What he could have done is looked at those brothers and then their heterosexual brother to see if the abnor abnormality existed on that brother's chromosomes as well. But he didn't do that. And it turns out that Dean Hamer was, was gay and a gay rights activist and he was trying to get more funding uh, for his homosexual research. Uh, but even he admitted uh, eventually that, that what he did did not uh, prove that uh, being homosexual was genetically predetermined, but oh, the media sensation, and people are convinced these days that a gay gene has been identified. But it's, you know, it's simply not true. There were twin studies done. There was a study done that, that argued that lesbians have longer ring fingers than other women, or different uh, architecture in their inner ear canal, just to show you how ridiculous these things get. Um, and none of those studies have been replicable. There was one study that argued that homosexuals have different eye-blinking patterns, so that shows a genetic cause. Um, people are, are wild about this stuff, but I don't know. If you're interested, I could send you some links. Um, it's just, it's not what science says, even though science has wanted to say it, wanted to, to demonstrate. Uh, so don't feel pressure about that. Uh, science has shown that homosexuality, sadly, tragically, tends to be very unhealthy. Uh, gay men have uh, lifespans that are seven years shorter than other men. 
much higher rates of communicable diseases, liver diseases, and certain cancers. Uh, uh, part of that, I think, is because gay men tend to have much higher promiscuity rates. Women moderate male sexual behavior, you know. Amen. Uh, yeah, we can admit that. Uh, and when it's just when it's just men together, there's no moderation of sexual behavior, behavior so their promiscuity rates tend to be through the roof. Uh, some, uh, most studies say, say that, that a gay man will have, on average, around 500 sexual partners in a lifetime. And one study by Princeton who argued it was something closer to 1,400. That's just, that's too many. That's too many. You've got no women to help out. To sort of moderate, slow things down, inject a little relationship into the deal. Um, so I think that's, that's that story. But gays, both men and women, uh, ha are 20 times more likely to suffer uh, antisocial personality disorder, 15 times, um, they have a 15 times higher rate of eating disorders. They are 500% more suicidal. Uh, transgender people, tragically, are 1,000% more suicidal. Uh, they have significantly higher rates of depression, anxiety disorder, conduct disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and much higher rates of substance abuse. And the thing about these trends is that they cross cultures. They're true in America and they're also true in Scandinavia where there's absolutely no stigma involved with being homosexual. It's just something inherent in the condition which doesn't mean that gay people should be judged. It means that gay people should be loved because they have an extra hard time of it, don't they? It's rough. It's rough. It's rough, man. I suggest that uh, homosexuality is probably unhealthy for more intimate reasons. You know, it's, I, I think it has something to do with kind of, it's kind of rejecting uh, how God designed you or how biologically you are designed. Um, the cry of the gay rights movement is, why can't you accept me as I am? Which is a cry of the heart. I mean, that's a very human cry. I think one diagnosis of, of why homosexuality is so, so unhealthy is the same cry. Well, why can't you accept yourself as you are? Right? There, there's a problem of acceptance here, and it's, it's causing dissonance in you. It's causing some unhealthy patterns. You should probably work on that. But it's just fascinating to me that, that both sides are pointing to the same heart cry, and it's a legitimate heart cry, because we all cry that, don't we? Why can't you just accept me as I am? We all cry that at God at one point or another. Stop judging me! Why do you withhold blessing from me? I mean, it's everybody's heart cry. It's just that, you know, some of us sexualize it, and that's about sexuality. You can do lots with it. You can take it to a lot of places. So what should you do about sexuality? What should you do about sexual culture? This is my message this morning, and pardon me for going late, is, is it's up to you. You get to be an individual about this. Sure, make up your own mind. Choose your own behavior. Just please recognize that you have a choice. You have a choice. You are not a computer program. 
you are not predetermined in any way, shape, or form. You might not have chosen where you are, but you do get to choose where you go, and God will help you with those choices. And the community of God should help you graciously and lovingly and affirmingly. That should be how culture works. That should be how culture works. You are not predetermined by your genes, nor should you be dominated by culture because you're an individual and you get to choose your own way. Just choose well. And if you need help with choosing well, well, I mean, the Bible offers some advice. And it's advice that has stood the test of time for thousands of years, so that's pretty good. Science has some advice if you take the, take the time to truly read it and get into it. You know, you can investigate, search out truth. That's a really healthy thing. Don't get beat up. Yeah, let's pray. We're just trying to navigate troubled waters here, God. We're just trying to be free people in a world that tries to dominate us. So I pray for that powerful one-two punch. Truth and grace. Grace and truth. In Jesus' name. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to those today who are in need of a little truth. Because Jesus said the truth will set you free. If you seek truth, well, you can find a path out of any confusion. It might be a process, but you'll find it. The truth will set you free. I bless you in Jesus' name to be men and women of truth. Free men and women of truth. Thank you very much. And I pray for those who this morning, Lord, need a touch of grace. To be people of grace. You know, like you were with respect to divorce. Like nobody's perfect, so let's just live with each other and love each other and accept each other as we are. Let me assure you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Christ himself, God accepts you as you are right now, this moment. He may have a healthier vision for your life, but that in no way diminishes his acceptance and delight in you right now. Whether you need truth or grace, this is the house of God and there is plenty of it to go around. In Jesus' name, everybody, let's hear it.